I'm Matt Swain, and you're listening to the Reimagining Communications podcast, where we will discuss the opportunities and challenges facing companies on the road to optimizing their communications for the future. Today, I'm joined by Elizabeth Gooding, president at Insights Forums, president and co-founder of Inkjet Insight, co-author of The Designer's Guide to Inkjet, former president of Art Plus Technology, an information design and document automation services company where she spent 19 years, and former editor of eBill Magazine, which tracked the formative years of the e-presentment and e-payment industry. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. Matt, thanks so much for inviting me. So tell me, it's a really interesting background here. What got you into this industry in the first place? Well, it was really kind of a long and winding road, but it parallels in a lot of ways the communications market overall. So you mentioned in that litany of experience there, Art Plus Technology, and one of the little known facts is that originally was founded as advanced programming techniques. So the nice thing is we didn't have to change the monogram on our towels or anything when we rebranded as Art Plus Technology. So you had towels in the office? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Got it. And I had a kitchen, actually. Lots of kitchen. (laughs) But... We were known as problem solvers, and that was kind of a key. So we developed report writing systems that took data off of mainframe financial systems. (laughs) Super exciting, right? We've lost all of our listeners. Yeah, yeah. But back in the day, that's what corporate communications was, right? So I was in a different aspect of it with the report writers, but all of those statements and bills and correspondence and everything, that really was the purview of IT, and marketing really didn't get near it. But we had this one client that came to us because uh, one of their marketing groups was launching a new annuity product, and they had already filed their communications in the different states, which is required for Mm -hmm. those types of products, and it had a pie chart on it. Oh, my God, a pie chart, (laughs) right? How dare they? How dare they, exactly, and bar charts and six different paper stocks and... uh, My client at the time had gone to their IT group and said, okay, what's going to take to get this done? And they told them three years and $3 million. And they said, oh, my God, we've got to get this done by October. And they they came to us and said, is there any chance you can figure this out? And we did. So short story is we did. It required us to develop a pie chart, a graphics system for them, do a little bit of redesign to get it down to four paper stocks because there was no printer. And I still don't think there's a printer that (laughs) handles more than four paper stocks. Maybe there was one that handled six at one point. And, uh, you know, to to trim a few things to, to get it to work. And as it turned out, we were the first people to ever put a pie chart on an investor statement. And so all of a sudden, everybody was calling us the pie chart people and saying, we want you to come do our statements. And we looked around and went, wait a minute, this is, nobody's doing this. There was no real customer communications practice at that point. And so we had to really get onto the design side as well. So we actually acquired a design firm at that point Mm -hmm. and rebranded as Art Plus Technology. And uh, the the rest was history. The company grew and grew, was very successful, became, you know, a household name with the regulated industries in finance and healthcare and insurance, et cetera, in simplifying and and uh, delivering those types of solutions. It's really interesting. I hadn't heard that the company had evolved in that way. And I think it's also interesting if you think about the client just assumed that pie charts were doable. And, and you probably often run into that in terms of design challenges where you have a creative agency that comes to the table and says, we want this in print. 
and might not understand the information design limitations in the background. Absolutely. You know, on the one side, it's really exciting to have people who are saying, you know, I'm going to assume this is possible and go out and, and try to do it. But on the other hand, when it comes to doing a project of this type, you really need your designers, you need the company that you're working with to understand that there are regulatory constraints, there are design constraints, there are delivery constraints, whether it's print or digital, mobile or, you know, on a PC or whatever, there's going to be limitations to the platform. And if they don't understand that when they're designing it, you can spend a whole lot of money on something that never goes into production. Right. And that gets ugly fast. So I guess when you help the early stages of that design, what are the elements of a good design while factoring in limitations of the technology? Yeah, it really it really kind of comes back to a methodology to make sure that you come up with a design that's going to work. And that entails looking at content first, right? Saying what do you have to work with? It's you know, it's like it's like cooking. What ingredients do I have? You know, what can I make with this? And then, you know, am I doing it on a barbecue? Am I doing it on a gas range? Am I, do I only have an oven? Um, you know, what do I have to work with? It's the same thing with content and with those, those operational constraints. And then, of course, the regulatory boundaries as well. So if you do a good job at putting all those together, the, the graphic design or UI design, that's a key skill set, but that's that's kind of the that's the end of the road. There's a whole lot of strategy and creative thinking and reimagining communications right. that has to happen up front. I love how you tied in the series title to your your response. We're going to try to get reimagining communications into as many points of this podcast as we can. Well, that's great. <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same page. So actually, from a design perspective, you co-authored the Designer's Guide to Inkjet, right? Mm-hmm. How did that change? What was the need for the public, the original publication of the book? And it sounds like you have a, a, another version coming out. So why the need for the update? Yeah, well, great question. The, you know, this is, again, why are you doing it when you're designing anything is a, is a great question up front. And in terms of the Designer's Guide for Inkjet, which I co-authored with, with Mary Schilling, who's a tremendous uh, expert in, in print quality analysis, is that Inkjet had a bad name for a while because a lot of what was on the market, the quality wasn't that good. Mm-hmm. And so you had, uh, first of all, you had designers shying away from it because you know they were expecting either what was on their desktop for Inkjet or... Things that had come out, um, you know, years before where the quality just wasn't anywhere near where it was in 2014 when we wrote the first book. And, of course, now the quality in 2018 is leaps and bounds beyond that. And so the the rework of the book is to say, well, it's not just inkjet. It's what kind of inkjet. Are you doing UV inkjet, aqueous pigment, aqueous dye, et cetera? You're going to get very different results. And different results, um, you know, if you're using things like primings, if you're using post coatings, if you're uh, the different type of paper, how important the paper is to the results that you're going to get. So that was one side of it, was setting the expectations and helping designers understand what was possible with Inkjet. Mm -hmm. But there was an ulterior motive, which is that a lot of the print providers who bought Inkjet, they're expensive. Um, You want to keep them up and running. They were getting design files from designers from their customers that were awful, that would just blow up the rip, blow up the printer, cause a lot of front-end rework and things like that. So on the one hand, you have something that helps designers 
reimagine their communications. I get, I get another Two. bingo point there. But also, it helped them deliver better files and work better with their print provider. So there's a lot of information in there about how designers should communicate with their print provider and understand both the opportunities that are available to them for personalization, for versioning, for potentially using additional colors beyond CMYK if that's available, um, but also understanding the boundary conditions in terms of the types of papers that are available to them, because a lot of times the inkjet provider will want to limit the papers because there's a lot of testing that goes on in um, making sure it's compatible with the inkjet environment. Um, But also uh, how if you lay down too much ink, you're potentially going to blow up the finishing on the back end. So really helping them understand what to look for and providing tools that they can that they can give to the print provider or actually more often the print provider can give to them. So like a reference chart that is printed on the paper that they want to use that shows them, you know, how small can they make regular text, reverse text, rich black versus plain black, you know, what's what's the color density going to be? How closely can they color match their brand color? So print a, a tint book. A very important A very important one, right? And a, something to deliver on. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that um, that the book spends a significant amount of time on is, is talking about out of gamut and what mm-hmm. that means, because not all of out of gamut is equal. You could have something that's out of gamut, but it's just a little bit out of gamut, and you know, how to find a spot on a on a tint chart to get you a close match right. with that. You know, I, I'm, I think back to my time in color science mm-hmm. in, in uh, grad school and looking at the Delta E for certain colors was much tighter compared to other colors. It might be a Delta E of 2 versus 10 to 11 in terms of what your eye can recognize. Mm-hmm. And I think back to if if I were to design the logo for a company starting out, what are the easier colors to hit across those different technologies? And, and I don't know that uh, a, a designer thinks in that way unless they have the education to be thinking about how, how will this play on a, on a screen in, in print where the, the technology might not be as advanced or you're, you're going for more of a business color versus, um, you know, full high quality. So it's, it's an interesting um, topic that we could spend a lot of time on just just in the color space. Yeah, yeah, the color and, and, and image quality and things like that. And there's a, you know, just a lot of things that aren't well understood. Like if, you know, if, if you have an area of fine detail that's smaller than the print head, like less than a half inch by a half inch, you, you just don't have enough dots there yeah. to, you know, to get too granular with it. So there's a lot of guidelines like that about how to get the, the best image quality and things like that. So as I said, you know, it served two purposes. It was really well received the first time, and we were really happy to be able to do an update in 2018. Well, I look forward to seeing the 2018 version. I have the 2014 version with me, actually, so I, I was able to look at it on the plane on my way here to just get an update. Great. So I, I'd like to also go back to client expectations and relative to design, because when you look at client desires to overhaul their communications. Those limitations in workflow and designs, um, there's there's established and legacy systems in place. There, you take in production output facilities, legal and compliance departments, and what they're, what they're going to allow and not. And then managing conflicting 
objectives within stakeholders in the industry or stakeholders within that company. I mean, you're almost like a a counselor in a way. <laughs> you're moderating within that organization when you go in to help with a redesign initiative, aren't you? Yeah, that's exactly right, Matt. Um, I kind of joke it's a combination of uh, education and marriage counseling because it's uh, a lot of it is often getting different groups to cooperate and play nice with each other. Um, it's really funny because sometimes we'll have someone that has one of these projects and they say, we have to get rid of our composition tool or our customer communications management tool. It's just terrible. And it's not the software, folks. It's right. how you designed it or what you did. You know, so each each group is pointing fingers at the other saying, you know, your software doesn't work. And the other one's saying your messages are bad. And the other one's, you know, saying, you know, it's just a lousy design or whatever. And you have to get everybody playing nice. And the other challenge is when you get people who are coming in, like maybe from the marketing side or the sales side or, or even the the operations, not IT, but the operation side, and they're saying, you know, we want to transform these customer communications. What they really mean is come in and make it pretty. Right. And they don't want to do the hard work of, of what we said earlier, figuring, well, what do I have to work with? What can I change? What can't I change? How do we get the different stakeholders involved to improve to approve you know the changes that we want to make so we don't go down a path spend a lot of money and find out we can't implement it and if you want to do certain things that are going to require a technology change is that an option or am i in a box that says yeah do whatever you can with what you've got now so you kind of got to start off as you said with with that therapy or that counseling or education or whatever to get everybody to agree on the guidelines up front of what you're what you're trying to do, what the purpose is, who are the stakeholders, who can approve it, and what do we have to work with. So if you tell me you got six weeks, that's a very different project than if you tell me I got six months. Right. I think that managing expectations becomes a really important piece of that as well, mm -hmm. because you'd have from maybe the initial meeting, here's where our statement is today, using mm -hmm. a statement as an example, or our prospectus or whatever it is. And here's where we want it to go to. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you might be saying you could add this barcode or you could incorporate this new technology or go to full color. And then at, toward the end of the project, you might have only made a, an incremental change from base because some of your ideas got shot down by legal and compliance or branding or output limitations or otherwise. Mm -hmm. So is there a a piece of that relationship where you have to really focus on managing expectations and mapping why we weren't able to deliver that transformation that you originally asked us to do? I think we try to avoid the situation of having to beg forgiveness at the sure. end exactly by setting those guidelines up front, right? So in a perfect world, we would always come in and and take a holistic approach mm -hmm. to looking at their communications and looking at the, you know, the print, the digital, the customer journey, all of those types of things, but they don't always have the budget for that. They don't always have the time for that. Sometimes there's They've you know, promised that they're going to deliver an upgrade within a certain period of time. Oftentimes, they've tried to do it in-house and failed, and then they're looking for someone outside to help them. So it, you, you really have to set those expectations up front and say, 
like I said before, what's our time? Mm -hmm. What's our budget? Uh, what can we change? What can't we change? Setting guidelines on language on could be paper size, could be, you know, whether whether you're affecting mobile or, or web or um, whether you can change regulatory language or not. I've had situations where the entire project was just language, just what are we going to call it? Mm -hmm. And just the, the taxonomy and the hierarchy um, that they, they couldn't figure that out internally because they were too close to it. And so we'd go through and, and help them with that, and then they were able to take other pieces. In other cases, that hierarchy and that taxonomy exists, and you're, you're going and, and doing the information design, the content strategy, and things like that. I think that your point around they were, they were almost too close to it, mm -hmm. you know, they, were, they were internal, it's well taken because I think that often people just assume, well, we can't do it that way because somebody decided that a long time ago, and now it's just ingrained that we can't do that. Mm -hmm. But when you have somebody come from the outside, you're able to challenge some of those assumptions and think about the way that you approach things differently because you don't, you haven't been, maybe poisoned isn't the right word, but you haven't had that internal perspective telling you for a while why things have to be a certain way. You get that new perspective. That's absolutely true. I would say that one of the most powerful words in reimagining communications is why. So it can be, why are you doing this? Why can't you do this? Yeah. Why do you want to do this? But a lot of times, a lot of the time, I will say, somebody's coming at you saying you can't do that. And when you say why, they'll give you a reason that really doesn't answer the question. It's, as you said, because this is the way we do it. Say, but, but why do you do it that way? What is the system limitation? How can we overcome that system limitation? So, you know, a common one is things like, oh, well, that's always uppercase. Right. And it looks awful. It's like, well, that's how our system stores it. Well, what would it take to change that? And, oh, it's going to be a huge project. It's a big deal. Oh, I don't want to touch that. You know, and it's like, well, let's at least look at it. You know, maybe we don't want to do it, but let's not shut it down before we talk about it. Maybe the company's willing to put in $25,000 or whatever. And a lot of times these things really aren't as big as people make it out to be, but yeah. they don't want to do it. Yeah. So it's also, sadly, uh, with some companies, they really don't want to learn new things. Some companies do. Some companies love learning new things and, and innovating. Um, and others really don't. They're just really entrenched in the status quo. And when you either want to bring in new technology or a new methodology or a new way of doing things, you'll get certain people in the organization that will pu push back hard. And it, you never know where it's going to come from. Right. You know, sometimes it's in marketing. Sometimes it's in IT. Sometimes it's the legal group. And that's where that therapy comes in. And also comes back to if you can get everybody at the table from the start and try to figure out what some of the uh, boundaries are in in that process, you can preempt some of that discussion and maybe have a better sense for where where the biggest pushback is going to come from. Mm, yeah, and you you know, and you made me think of something else, Matt, which is it's the boundary conditions and it's you know it's kind of picking those battles but the other thing that really helps is when you're able to communicate what the opportunities are mm -hmm. why is it worth doing this what's the benefit to the customer is this going to have a, a measurable impact on call volume and drive call drive costs down is this something that's going to affect customer attrition in a certain way so 
any time that you can go after something that you want to improve on a communication, and it's not about red versus blue or Helvetica versus Bogle or whatever, it's it's about driving um, a measurable uh, response to something or, or a, a desired behavior from the customer, whatever that may be, you're in a much better position to get the budget or get the cooperation or whatever if you can make that case well. Yeah. So let's shift briefly to your time as editor of eBill magazine. Mm-hmm. So this was 1999 to 2003. And at the time, I've got to imagine you would have guessed that 15 years later, there would not be as much paper in that process as there there is today. Is that is that a fair statement? Well, yes and no. I would say when I first started off, um, you know, when the, the the new blush of of getting involved in eBill, I would have said, "Oh, yeah, this is this is great. This is going to take over the world. Everybody, you know, everybody was going to get rich, and you know, everybody was going to want this." And very quickly, I saw that the the vendors who were pushing the solutions had really gone off in a wrong direction, and it was because of this ready assumption that consumers were going to want this so bad that they were going to be the ones who were willing to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And that was just dead wrong. And then it was that the companies who were offering this to consumers were going to see this as a benefit and therefore were going to be willing to pay for it. And really, the market that was willing to pay for these digital solutions was the B2B billing, right? not the consumer billing. And that was an afterthought. There weren't very many companies at all that were pursuing that angle. The invoicing, yeah. Yeah, the invoicing side. You know, so you, you also had archiving solutions at the time that were very expensive that, that a lot of companies had. So if you set your way back machine and companies had come at it and said, we're going to push this as let's look at the, the archiving, the B2B side of this market first to create the infrastructure mm-hmm. for for the consumer side – it would have been far less expensive to offer this for consumers. And they would have seen this as something that, you know, customers aren't going to pay for it. It was a benefit to, to be able to turn off the postage is a benefit to the company. But they had to to deliver robust consumer solutions from day one, not tippy-toe into it and, and try to get the customers to come on board just to save a tree. That wasn't right. the answer. Right. Right. You got a few people, not a lot. I think with... My background, having done research in that shift to paperless and how is it happening, how quickly is it happening, forecasting the market, it was always really interesting to see the business expectation for paper suppression and then the consumer reality of where consumers were at the time. And I think that today it's more about providing good design in print and digitally, and then a strong customer experience in a digital environment. That between those various points, you're going to you put the consumer at the center of the offering. You know, as we move from print to digital, it's going to look and feel the same, mm-hmm. right? So it's not this foreign uh, thing, right? It's that's the same statement that I would have seen in print. But then also that experience for the consumer is going to 
be equal to or greater than the experience that they had in a print-only environment. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And I guess the other thing I would add to that is companies tend to look at this as print or digital, and they really need to look at print and digital. And that doesn't mean all print, all digital. Yeah. So there's, you know, right now you see some companies that are pretty good about having the spectrum of saying, I can turn off statements but keep confirms or turn off confirms and keep statements or turn off prospectuses and, and get this, whatever. What you don't see is them reimagining those print communications to make it more likely for someone to turn off some of them, right? Yeah. So maybe I would take just a summary page because I want to get something that reminds me. You know, maybe I would just take a postcard that says, hey, your statement's ready. Maybe I would take a statement quarterly instead of monthly. Maybe I would take a year-end summary right. instead of a monthly statement. But does and, that also change the design ambitions? Or yeah. do, does it change how you will design overall when you're looking at print and digital together? The print and digital is not necessarily the issue. Mm -hmm. It's the willingness of the customer to really think differently about how they break down their communications. And again, there's that regulatory aspect. So some so you know, sometimes if you're giving people stuff in print, there's a way that you have to do it. But if someone if someone is willing to opt in for digital, if you give them a year end in print, that's okay. You can do that. And there are certain uh, vertical markets or business areas where you have a lot more flexibility than, say, with you know, credit cards is very closely mandated. There's, there's other types of bills and statements where you can really kind of pick and choose how you want to present stuff and, and get very creative and very flexible in a way to march people towards that digital adoption. And the other factor to keep in mind is it's not just about turning off paper. The benefits of getting people to go online is stickiness and yeah. customer retention, right? So even if they, ideally you'd like them to, to use, if not no paper, certainly less paper. But even just by getting them to have services like bill payment, uh, you know, maybe an asset allocation service, uh, you know, retirement plan or... Um, you know, budgeting programs, things like that, that they that they may use online, it helps keep them as a customer. So, so there's a, a benefit to digital in its own right without just turning off the paper. Yeah, that's it, it, it's interesting, and I think watching how the communications desires are evolving, and how businesses and um, their providers are reimagining those communications for them. It's an exciting time in this market. I, I, I love seeing what's, what change is coming and then how we can support businesses on that path to change. And, and I've got to imagine that that's a similar driver for you. Yeah, absolutely. The possibilities are just fabulous in terms of both print and digital and how to bring them together. We went through a, a really tough financial period a few years ago where people weren't investing in, in a lot of communications mm -hmm. redesign. They're back, you know, stuff's, uh, stuff's changing. There's a lot more redesign happening. And I think a lot of companies out there are, are ready. And there's also a lot more measurement being done 
on um, customer satisfaction, costs, uh, customer experience, all that kind of thing. Fascinating stuff, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Matt. I'm glad there's somebody else here who thinks it's fascinating. Absolutely. I'm Matt Swain, and you've been listening to the Reimagining Communications podcast. To learn more about Broadridge, our insights, and our innovations, visit broadridge.com or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. 